Let's pray. Father, we do praise you, and we praise our Messiah, Jesus. Lord, we thank you that all of our hope is fixed on him. Lord, there is nothing in us worth uh, redeeming. Lord, we have rebelled against you, and we have crucified your Son. And his blood, in that sense, is on our hands, Lord. But Lord, out of the abundance of your love, you sent him to redeem us. And in him, Lord, we have everything. And we praise you, Lord. We praise you for him. We praise you that his kingdom is forever, that he reigneth forever and ever, and that he is Jesus, the crucified. And Lord, as we look to him this morning from the gospel of Mark, we pray for your grace. Help us to see, to understand, and to believe, and to submit to Jesus, our Lord. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Today, we set out on a journey through this extraordinary book. It's extraordinary because it's a book about the most extraordinary man who has ever lived. Now, there's no person so influential, so remembered, so revered in history, and at the same time, there has never been anyone so misunderstood, so misconstrued, so maligned as Jesus of Nazareth. Even this morning, you're here with an opinion about Jesus of Nazareth. Well, during his lifetime, Jesus was misunderstood by those who were closest to him, his disciples. It seemed like they constantly were misunderstanding him. The Jews, unbelieving Jews, understood him to be a rebel, a blasphemer, and a man cursed by God. The Romans saw him as an instigator of the Jews, kind of a religious fanatic. And throughout the centuries, the opinions about Jesus have steadily multiplied. Uh, Beginning in the 1700s, so-called critical Bible scholars began a quest to discover a man they called the historical Jesus, the historical Jesus, which is essentially a catchphrase for those who believe that the Bible is an unreliable historical account. And so these folks set off on a journey themselves to discover who the real Jesus was, and they began by discounting God's word outright. Sadly, the journey, the quest, as they call it, for the historical Jesus is still going on today. It's not going on for us, right? We know who he is. But there is a a large segment of the academy who is pursuing who this historical Jesus is. And I, I think now we are in the third quest. So just so you know where you're at. Well, the consequence of this misguided search for the historical Jesus is that each so-called Jesus scholar ends up creating a Jesus in their own image. And at this point, uh, there's a Jesus for everybody, right? There's a liberal Jesus, a conservative Jesus, a humanitarian Jesus. Uh, There's a hippie Jesus. Uh, There's a hipster Jesus. Right, there's a Jesus for the social justice warrior. You, you have a Jesus out there for anyone who wants him. It's, it's become a sort of buffet of options. Pick your Jesus. And you can pick your church to propagate this opinion about Jesus. What is needed in the world is always objectivity. Someone who can be objective and tell us Who was this man? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Well, that's where the gospel of Mark comes in for us. In his gospel account, Mark wants to show us who Jesus really is. And so, I invite you to stand with me for our scripture reading. Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God. Amen. You can be seated. I thought about reading the whole chapter, but I thought I'd be gracious to you. So Mark's agenda is to answer this question. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? And this is a question that you will answer today. You will answer that question today. By the end of this sermon, our study of the whole Gospel of Mark, you will have given your answer. And in your view, he will either be all that Mark says he is, and you will worship him and follow him and continue to follow him, and he will be the Lord of your life. Or you will leave here unconvinced of Mark's account, unmotivated by Jesus' life, and unchanged. But you will make a decision. And your life will demonstrate what your decision is. But the objective reality is actually that Mark sets before us who the real Jesus is. And this Jesus is who he is regardless of your opinion about him. Electricity doesn't care what you think about it. It remains electricity. Jesus remains who he is objectively, regardless of your opinion. And the person that needs to change this morning is not Jesus, but it's you and it's me. And Mark calls us to come before this man and be changed. So what does Mark, the Gospel of Mark, have to tell us about Jesus of Nazareth? Well, in a word... Mark writes this gospel account to demonstrate the good news that Jesus of Nazareth was, in fact, in reality, the promised Messiah, the suffering servant, and the risen Lord. And Mark makes his case for this claim not by emphasizing the teaching of Jesus, but primarily by showing us the work of and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. In this way, Mark is actually a gospel of action. It's a a fast-paced but brief account of Jesus' life. You could actually read this whole gospel in an hour. 16 chapters, you could sit down and quickly work through it. It's that brief. You could read it that quickly. But Mark doesn't just move quickly. He actually gives an extraordinary amount of detail. They can read it in an hour, but Mark goes into some extreme detail where the other Gospels seem to just give the basic facts. Characteristic of Mark is the, this adverb, immediately. You'll see it over, we'll see it some 40 times in our study of Mark, however long this will take us. But you'll see it over and over, immediately, immediately, or straightway. This is what he did. And Mark moves so quickly But he gives, like I said, this immense detail. For example, in the story of Jesus' raising of Jairus' daughter, Mark uses 345 Greek words to describe that scene. Matthew, on the other hand, uses only 139 words. So Mark moves quick, but he gives us the details we need. Now, why does Mark do this? Why does Mark just move very fast, but then give us a lot of detail? What's he trying to do? Well, what he does is he sort of takes us by the hand and shows us this extraordinary man in action. Who was he? Mark says, well, see for yourself. He wants you to behold him. And by most accounts... Mark's gospel is largely based on the eyewitness account of Peter, the apostle. As early as 140 AD, Mark is called the interpreter of Peter. And the church fathers understood that the gospel of Mark was likely compiled in Italy during the lifetime of Peter. So Peter is alive, Peter's preaching, and Mark is going with Peter, hearing him preach, hearing him teach, He's with Peter at the end of long days of preaching and teaching. He's with Peter to hear him just tell the stories 
of Jesus of Nazareth. And, and Peter is conveying to Mark really three years of incredible ministry with Jesus. And here is the elder Peter sharing with Mark what this man did. And what this does for us when we understand that Mark is essentially Peter's account of the gospel is really quite amazing. It gives us an inside look at the person and work of Jesus from Peter's vantage point. Now, let me just say, this is a sermon that's going to cover all of Mark. Okay, so some of this uh, might get a little lectury, and, and I'm going to try not to be um, too teachy here, um, whatever that means. <laughs> but just know that this initial sermon is really an overview, and so we're going to have to have some background so that we can get a, a good handle on Mark's gospel. So with that said, Mark is essentially the first-hand account of Jesus of Nazareth from the Apostle Peter's perspective. And this is significant, and I'm going to show you exactly what I mean. Turn to Mark chapter 5. There's a unique feature of Mark's gospel that scholars call the plural to singular narrative device. Write that down. It'll be on the quiz. Pace, I'm going to come to you, brother. What they mean by this is essentially that in Mark's gospel, he often introduces a story with a plural pronoun and then narrows it down to a singular. Now look at Mark 5, verse 1. I'll show you what I'm talking about. They plural pronoun, came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he, singular, got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Now at first blush, this seems rather uh, uninteresting, except for the Gerasene demoniac that runs up to him. But what these guys have noticed is that if you take into consideration that Mark would have been Peter's account and he would have received this from Peter himself, you can easily see how this would have come to Mark from Peter's perspective. Here's what I mean. Substitute they for we and you'll get the, the point of the plural to singular narrative device. Let's read it this way. We, here's Mark, Peter. Peter's been preaching all day. They sit down and here's what Peter says. And we came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he got out of the boat, immediately, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him. And the shackles broke in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up to him and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? He said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Can you see Peter telling this story? And we came up, and this man came up, and this is what it was like, and this is what he said, this is what he did, this is the terror that he had raged in his region, and this is what this man did. A man who, who the whole city had tried to bind with chains. But this man walked up to him and said, be gone, and cured him with the word. 
It's, it's amazing. It's an amazing account. Peter is recounting this story from his point of view, and Mark is able to write it down. And all of this, though, back to our point, all of this, the life and ministry of Jesus here, is going to be put forward by Peter as an argument for this. That Jesus of Nazareth was no mere man. Oh, he was a man. And Mark is going to emphasize Jesus' humanity through and through. But that is not the end of it. Mark takes us along with Peter as Jesus is doing his ministry and says, look at him. Look what he's doing. No man could do that. He's a man, but certainly he is much more than a man. He is actually the promised Messiah, the suffering servant, and the risen Lord. And for Mark, according to verse 1, this is incredibly good news. Look at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the main theme of Mark. Really, this is Mark's title. To be specific, what Mark is saying is that the beginning of the gospel, or the gospel is really about Jesus, the Messiah. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What he means there is it's the good news about Jesus Christ. By of Jesus, it's good news about Him. It's an objective genitive. Jesus, then, is the good news. Gospel means good news. And here, the good news is that news that terminates on the person of Jesus of Nazareth. The man, Jesus. Now, Mark claims this right out of the gate. This is a bold way to start your gospel. This is who he is. He's the Messiah, and he's the Son of God. And he states it explicitly here. But really, the first eight chapters of Mark, Mark is going to go about demonstrating by Jesus' life that he really was the promised Messiah. And that's point one, if you're taking notes. Jesus is truly the promised Messiah. Messiah, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah. The word Christ means Messiah. And this is one of the most important words in all of Scripture, Messiah. It comes from the Hebrew word that means anointed one. And to be anointed was to be ceremonially set aside for a special office. And in the Old Testament, there were three offices for which one would be set aside by a special anointing. You know what they are? We sing about it. Prophet and priest and king. Amazingly, our Lord upholds all three offices in himself. He is the Messiah. And he clearly, according to Mark, he's clearly the anointed prophet that uh, Moses foretold. We see this in Mark 4 to, verse, to chapter 6. We see that he's teaching in a way that's powerful and authoritative that we'll look at in a few minutes. He's clearly the prophet. He's clearly the priest by his sacrificial death, resurrection, and ascension, and current session at the Father's right hand. He has demonstrated himself to be a high priest greater than Melchizedek. He is the priest. And one day... He will return and set up his kingdom here and he will be demonstrated and vindicated at the culmination of his kingdom where he's anointed the king of all. And by the time, though, Jesus arrives on the scene, the word Messiah really had taken on this idea of kingship. The emphasis was really on the Davidic king. And when the first century Jew used this word Messiah... He was thinking about an eschatological king, one who would come and make all the governmental problems right. You remember God's promise to David all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7? Let me read some of that for you. 
Now, therefore, this is 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. This is the promised Messiah. Thus you shall say to my servant, David. David is wanting to build a king, I mean, to build a, t- uh, a house, rather, for the Lord. And he had set out to do that. And God said, no, that's not the plan. It'll be different than you think. And so God, through the prophet Nathan, came to David and said this. I took you, David, from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. This is what God is going to do for you. Verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. Literally, descendant is seed. Throughout the whole of Scripture, there's this theme of seed, the messianic seed. And God says, I will raise up your seed after you who will come forth from you, David, and I will establish his kingdom. And and listen carefully to this. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Your house, verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So there are a few things that we can see from this messianic prophecy. First, we would see that the Messiah would be a son of David. He would be a human in that sense. He would be a son of man. He would be a human. Second, he would be the son of God. He says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. So the Messiah will be uniquely related to God the Father. And third, we see that his reign will be unending. When Jesus comes on the scene and starts saying things like, I am the Son of Man, the Son of God, when he's called the Messiah, he was alluding to his fulfillment of all the messianic promises. In one sense, there's only one messianic promise and there are a lot of iterations of it. But Jesus was saying, I am He. I am the one. And when He says this, the crowds look and say, wow, that is a claim. Quite a claim. And Mark, right out of the gate, says this Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the promised Messiah. He is this man who came out in and out among us This is the man, the Messiah. And Mark sets out to prove this, remember, not by logical argumentation, not that he's illogical, but his main focus is on the ministry of Jesus so that you look at him and say, he he was the Messiah, and he is the Messiah. And he does this all up through, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 8. And let me just walk you through some of that. Uh, He's taking us by the hand and, and shows us that Jesus proves himself to be the Messiah by his authoritative teaching. Remember chapter 1, verses 21 to 27. Jesus goes in the the temple, he teaches. The people are amazed at his teaching, verse 22. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. People are struck that Jesus is not rooting, grounding his authority in rabbinic tradition. But he's speaking as if he has some authority in and of himself. His teaching is direct and personal. He's not laying out all the options that you get to choose from. He's saying, this is true. I am the one. And verse 27, they're all amazed at the end of his teaching and they debate among themselves saying, what is this? What is this? It's kind of like, who is this man? What is this? A new teaching with authority. He even is able to cast out the demons and they obey him. His teaching was powerful and authoritative. But he also demonstrated power over physical impairments. Chapter 6, he enters, chapter six verse 56 says this. Wherever he entered, here's the man Jesus. Wherever he entered, 
villages or cities or countrysides. They were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. What sort of man is this? Chapter 7, verse 37, the consensus was this. They were all utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Here is a man who is flawless and powerful and able to do that which men should not be able to do. He exercised power and authority over life and death. You remember uh, Mark 5 when he brings Jairus' daughter back from the dead. What kind of man can do that? Who brings people back from the dead? Certainly there are all sorts of claims that that happens today. But it's amazing that no one is going to the cemeteries and seeing this happen. Jesus was no ordinary man. He demonstrated his authority also over the law of God even. Wow, that's, that's dangerous. Chapter 2. He has authority over the Sabbath. He has authority over Jewish traditions. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. He even has authority to forgive you of your sins. Now you tell me what man can do that. He has power over the demonic, chapters 3 and 5. We already have seen his power over the garrison demoniac. With a word, Jesus is able to cure a man and turn him into a zealous missionary who had just hours prior been chained in a wild man. And lastly, and maybe even most clearly, Mark chapter 4. I want you to turn there with me. Where we see this question. And this sort of awe and amazement at Jesus the man. How is he doing this and, and who is he? Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep. Who does that? He was asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And so he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush! Be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Verse 41, They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and sea obey him? What kind of man can do this? We could multiply examples all the way through chapter 8 and even beyond with these categories that I'm giving you of Mark's gospel. It's not perfect, right? It's just a general idea of how Mark lays out. The first part, Mark is proving that Jesus is the powerful, promised, authoritative Messiah. And it comes all the way up to Mark chapter 8. So turn with me to Mark 8. And we see the question is still lingering. Who is he? What kind of man is he? Until finally we get to Mark 8, chapter 27. Or chapter 8, verse 27, rather. Verse 27 says this, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, all right, now the time has come. Who do people say that I am? There are all these questions out there, People, every time I do something, you know, people are scratching their head and amazed and wonder. Who do they say that I am? And, and they tell him, verse 28, well, some of them are saying John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist has been killed at this point. And others say Elijah. But others, one of the prophets. Now look at verse 29. Jesus explicitly asked, who do you say that I am? 
who do you say that I am? And that, friend, is the most important question that you will ever answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? Well, Peter and the disciples get it right. You are the Messiah. And Peter's confession here is the climax of this first section of Mark. It culminates Mark's effort to just set Jesus before us so we can see him as he truly is. And he puts Peter's confession as Jesus, the Messiah, at the top of this long argument demonstrating that Jesus was who he said he was. Now it's clear at this point that the disciples have finally understood something. They were slow to understand. This is one of the characteristics of Mark's gospel. He doesn't take it easy on these dear disciples. He calls them out for their hard-heartedness, their stubbornness, their slowness to believe all that the law and the prophets have said. He lays it out there. And the disciples at this point have finally understood that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And in their minds, they're suddenly full of wonder and delight and rapture. Because now, this man, who just so happens to be their best friend, is the Messiah. And certainly, all of the wonderful messianic promises of a physical, earthly reign of the Messiah run through their minds. Passages like Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Now, we're in chapter 8 right now, but this verse, Zechariah 9, is going to be used in Mark 11 when Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem. Here is your king. Notice how Zechariah continues. Zechariah 9, verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. When Messiah comes, this is what he's going to do, as far as they could see. It will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth, river Euphrates to the ends of the earth. His dominion will be comprehensive. He'll bring utter peace. And Isaiah 9 tells us, as we read, that the government will be on his shoulder. Of, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will rule to establish it and to uphold this kingdom, physical earthly kingdom, with justice and righteousness from that point on and forevermore. When the disciples hear Peter's pronouncement... He's the Messiah. And Jesus, in Matthew, confirms Peter's confession as being divinely wrought in Peter. Essentially saying, Peter, you're right. I am the Messiah. They begin thinking, this is incredible. We're going to have it made. Rome is done. This is the man. No wonder he's able to control and exercise authority and power over all these sick people, hurt people, demons. It all makes sense now. He's the king and his kingdom is being established. And this is their thought. So much so that when we get to chapter 10, actually not chapter 10, I'm sorry. Verse 32. This is what they're thinking. So much so that when, when, when it clicks for Peter that he's really the Messiah and his heart is filled with joy, verse 32 says that... Actually, let's go back to verse 31, sorry. Verse 31, Jesus says, And he began to teach them. Peter's just confessed him as Christ. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Peter is shocked. So much so that in verse 32, he takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Why does Peter rebuke Jesus? 
Well, because Jesus doesn't seem to understand the promise of the Messiah. The Messiah doesn't lose, Jesus. Right? You, you, you've missed it. The Messiah wins. He's invincible. He's the Son of Man, according to Daniel. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Peter, Peter thinks Jesus has missed this. And he came up, according to Daniel. The Son of Man comes up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before the Ancient of Days. And to the, the Messiah was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. It's time, Jesus, for these nations to come and to serve you. And we want to be right there with you. And then notice, the end of verse 14, His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus, don't you understand who you are? Now, what had Peter missed? He's understanding the messianic kingdom. I mean, at least to one extent. Peter and the disciples had not yet understood that in the mystery of God's redemptive plan, the Messiah would not just be endowed with all authority and power and be given an everlasting kingdom, but He would also be a suffering servant. And if you're taking notes, this is point number two. Suffering servant. The Messiah would be a king, a glorious savior. The government would be on his shoulders, but he would also be a suffering servant. This is clearly laid out for us in Isaiah 53. So let's, let's turn there, and I want to just point out a, a couple of things to you from Isaiah chapter 53. This is the prophecy of the, son of, of the suffering servant. What we see in this text is, is statement after statement of how the, the, the servant of Yahweh, right, the Messiah, would suffer. And also we see the intention of his suffering. Isaiah 53, actually we'll, we'll start in 52, beginning in verse 13. Just notice how this verse starts. Behold... My servant will prosper. Jesus. All right, you're saying you're going to be crucified. You're not prospering. My servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Then notice how it goes. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance, the servant's appearance, was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men thus he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths on account of him for what had not been told to them they will see and what they had not heard they will understand who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He's, He's dying on the tree because he's cursed of God. No understanding that he's dying on the tree as the suffering servant in the stead of ruined sinners. Verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, 
Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? They didn't realize that he was suffering because of their transgression. And that in his death, he was accomplishing something that they could never imagine. Well, they could have if they would have known Isaiah 53 a little better, I think. Um, But he was accomplishing their redemption. In Mark, when we move into Mark chapter 8, really from verse 27 all the way to chapter 15 and verse 47, what we see is the demonstration of Jesus as the suffering servant. He sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And when he does, he's doing it as the powerful promised Messiah, but also as the suffering redemptive servant. And this is what we see really probably best encapsulated in Mark chapter 10. So flip with me to Mark chapter 10. That prophecy from Isaiah 53 is amazing. Because it's you know, some 700 years before Christ comes on the scene. It's remarkably detailed and specific. But Mark 10, verse 45. Actually, let's read verse 43. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In a very real sense, the promise of a suffering servant goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Right? The, the serpent would be crushed, but the seed would be bruised. Right? So Jesus would take the bruising for the good of God's people. The messianic victory over Satan would come at the expense of the Messiah's life. And Mark, in verse 45, captures Jesus' words for us. The Son of Man did not come to be served. He did not come. In one sense, he, He did come to be served. And He will come to be served and praised and worshipped for eternity. When He returns, that will happen. But His initial coming was not about a physical kingship established on this globe, but about service, about laying his life down for the people that God gave him. This is John 17. The idea of ransom from verse 45 of chapter 10 refers to the price paid to free a slave or a prisoner. Ransom is a price paid to free a slave or a prisoner. And the price of your ransom, the price of every sinner's ransom, was the life of the glorious Messiah. The price of your ransom was the life of the glorious Messiah. The King, the powerful, authoritative man, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who could in a moment have annihilated everyone on the globe, but decided willingly to bear the weight of your sin on Himself. He's the suffering servant. Now, amazingly, just as Jesus unpacks for the disciples what He's going to do, verse, let's go to chapter 10, verse 32. We'll back up just a little bit. Chapter 10, verse 32. We see something that's just striking. It's a lesson on discipleship. Which, incidentally, is is one of Mark's other key themes. Christology, who is Jesus? And also, what does it mean to follow him? But Mark 10, uh, verse 32, are you there? They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Here the suffering servant has set his face to go to be crucified. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and spit on him, and scourge him, and kill him, and three days later, he will rise again. This is the journey they were on to Jerusalem. And the details are specific. And notice that Peter doesn't reprimand Jesus this time. He's learned his lesson. Be called Satan by the Messiah once. And that's enough. Jesus, or Peter received his rebuke. And he learned, at least here, um, temporarily, to keep his mouth shut for a little bit. And to hear and learn. And Jesus says, this is what's going to happen in Jerusalem. We're going to go there. Chapter 11, uh, the, the triumphal entry will happen. And then, by chapters 14 and 15 of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is publicly, uh, he's arrested, he's publicly humiliated, and finally he's crucified, just as the prophet Isaiah foretold. And so Jesus is clearly to the disciples the promised Messiah, and he's becoming more clearly to them the suffering servant. Something's happening to this man. We're not sure what it is, but they don't get it yet. They still don't get it. Look at verse 36. Actually, let's go to verse 35. As Jesus had just told them what was going to happen in verse 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus. Here Jesus has just laid out his heart. This is what's about to happen. And here they come to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. What? I mean, here he is. Everyone's afraid and amazed at what is about to happen. We're going to Jerusalem. If they're going to kill you, Jesus, why aren't we going there? What's happening? Well, James and John see an opportunity. So when you establish your Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 throne, Isaiah 9 throne, when you establish that throne, here in the next couple of days or so, right? Um, we, we want you to do something for us. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. Well, the next time that you are tempted to think, Uh, that someone is annoying around you, or you're tempted to be impatient with someone. Just read this account and thank God that your situation is not as difficult. I mean, here is Jesus with his best friends totally missing and not even listening to what he's saying. It's amazing. Disciples really just didn't get it until chapter 16. Right? What's significant about chapter 16 that helps them get it? Well, chapter 16 accounts the resurrection of Jesus. And after the resurrection, and Jesus' subsequent words to them, the disciples have His words crystallized in their minds. Three years of ministry, three years of watching this man live before them. And all of a sudden, they realize for the first time that this man was not only the promised Messiah, but he was also the suffering servant. And his death was the ransom for their sins. He had given his life for theirs. They get it. But on the other side of the resurrection, they also see something else. Namely, that Jesus is the risen Lord. He's the Messiah. He's a suffering servant, but He is also the risen Lord. They understood, at this point, a crucial principle in the Messianic plan. That the cross of Jesus was the pathway to His glory. That He, having died, having been publicly humiliated, having suffered as the servant of Yahweh, is now the risen Lord of all. And He bids everyone to come and follow Him. They saw Him resurrected. They heard Him speak. And all of a sudden, they, they knew this was no ordinary man. 
And here's why. He is the promised Messiah. He's the suffering servant. But he is also the risen Lord. And, and, and these words, jump over to Mark 16. It's amazing to me uh, the way that the Gospel of Mark ends. There are a lot of questions about it, and we'll talk about that in, whenever we get there. Um, but it's amazing to me that Jesus appears uh, having, when he was resurrected, that the angel appears, rather, to the, to, um, the women who come to the tomb. And, and down in verse 6, chapter 16, verse 6, he says to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. Right? Suffering servant. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. The, the suffering servant is no longer here. He has risen. And he is now the exalted Lord. But go tell his disciples. Notice verse 7. But go tell his disciples. And who? And Peter. Isn't it fascinating that Peter is mentioned here? Well, it makes total sense if Peter is the mind or the, the, really the historian behind Mark's gospel. The eyewitness. But what else is fascinating about this is that what has Peter done uh, uh, right as the crucifixion was unfolding? What did Peter do? Yeah, he denied Christ multiple times. So maybe Mark, maybe the angel mentions, mentions Mark's, or Peter specifically um, because, you know, this is, uh, I mean, Peter specifically because this is uh, Peter's retelling of it, you know, in me. Or, more likely, he mentions Peter specifically because Peter is the one who had blown it the most. Go tell my disciples. And they're all know, you know, aware, okay, Peter has denied the Lord just like our Lord said he would. Go tell our disciples to meet the King, the risen Lord, in Galilee. Yes, including Peter. Those would have been sweet words to hear for Peter, right? He had missed it. He had fumbled. He had dropped the ball. He had, he had, he had done everything wrong during the crucifixion. Yet Jesus beckons him still. Go to Galilee Come to me, you're still numbered among my own. It's, it's amazing. It's an amazing insight. Well, we could go on to Mark 10, back to Mark 10, and learn about the risen Lord. What does the risen Lord call us to? Well, Mark 10, 43 uh, and following, the risen Lord calls us to lay down our lives to follow him. Jesus modeled this servanthood perfectly gave his life as a ransom for many. He is the model. We are to follow him. But in Mark 8, we find a very powerful insight to what it means to submit to Jesus as the risen Lord. It, it precedes his crucifixion, but it lays out for us in detail what it looks like to submit to him and to follow him as Lord. I'm going to read this for you. Verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here, Jesus lays out that the response to him as risen Lord must be to follow him. And clearly, the entryway to authentic discipleship is by crucifixion. Anyone who wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. No one who is unwilling to take up the cross 
can ever claim to be a true disciple of Christ. Like the disciples who went before us, we naturally are inclined to the glorious kingdom. Right? We want to be with Him in His reign. Taking up a cross is a different story. We much prefer the golden crown to the crown of thorns. Right? We, we prefer the majestic throne rather than the humiliating cross. We like to think about the messianic kingdom rather than being considered aliens and strangers and exiles and pilgrims on the earth. But Jesus says, the messianic model, if you want to follow him, you must die. You must submit to him as promised Messiah, trust in his atoning work for you as a suffering servant, and submit your life to him as the risen Lord. He calls you, us all to follow Him. And when Christ calls us, He bids us to come and die. To lay down our lives. It's fascinating to me, and I have to finish. Uh, it's fascinating to me that Mark's gospel was most likely written from Rome to persecuted Christians. Now why? Why would Mark highlight what he does to persecuted Christians? Well, I think, at least one reason, is that they, like us, needed to be reminded of this messianic model. That is, the cross always precedes the crown. Crown. Anyone who is not willing to bear the cross of suffering in this life will never wear a crown in the next. The pathway to glorification, then, is the pathway of crucifixion. If we will be Christ's disciples, we must die. We must take up our cross. But we realize when we do that, we actually live. This is the, the wonder of, of Mark 8. He says, verse 35, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. If you live your life trying to be the Lord of your own existence... And save your own life. Enjoy it. You know, live it to the full as your own head and Lord. You will, Jesus says, lose your life. But if you enter into a, a relationship with Him as the risen Lord, by dying to self, taking up your cross and following Him, you will have life. The way to life is to die. It reminds me of the hymn, and I'll close. Jesus, I my cross have taken. Right, you know that hymn? Jesus, I my cross have taken. All to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken. Thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition. All I've sought or hoped or known. Yet, how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them untrue. Oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate and friends disown me. Show thy face and all is right. Soul, and this is the exhortation, soul then know thy full salvation. Rise o'er sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every station. Something still to, to do or bear. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father smiles are thine. Think what Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? True life, friends, is found in submitting to Jesus, the promised Messiah, suffering servant, and the risen Lord. And my question, and Mark's question to you, is have you submitted to Him as Lord? Have you bowed to Him? Have you confessed Him as Messiah? And has, have you are you clinging to Him as your atoning sacrifice? And is your life marked by submission to Him? You, you will answer that question. When you leave here, that question will have been answered. And it will be answered just like Jesus' life demonstrates his, that He is the Messiah. Your life demonstrates who is your Lord. And if it's Jesus, 
He will rule and reign, and you will be joyful. But if it's not, you will live for yourself. And Jesus calls you to come to him even now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful book. Help us, Lord, to follow your Son, the Savior, more earnestly today. Thank you for the the glory of the gospel. Thank you that you love sinners like us. And we pray, Lord, open our lips even now that we might praise you in song. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.